Hello, Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. And guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, uh, making his weekly appearance, is the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs, Kylie McDaniel, uh, as he does every week in this particular edition of the program. Kylie uh, endeavors to analyze all prospects. Of particular note, Nassim Taleb's uh, black swan theory applied to pitchers in the draft. Applied to pitchers in the draft. Kylie wrote about that last week for the electronic pages. Uh, we consider it in more depth here. That and uh, another piece that Kylie McDaniel wrote uh, regarding time horizons for pitchers uh, lead us to a conversation about Vanderbilt right-hander, uh, a high-effort starter, Carson Fulmer, where he's going to be going to the draft, where he ought to go in the draft, and what his prospects might be as a pro. We discussed the uh, how the Black Swan theory, um, if it does apply, uh, how it might apply to position players. It's, it's, it's a careful distinction one has to make between type and class of player, but it perhaps is a class of position player to whom it applies. Uh, we also, I asked Kylie McDaniel about Dodgers right-handed prospect Jose De Leon, former 24th round pick, who by some non-inconsequential measures uh, has been the best uh, minor league pitcher this year thus far. And finally, uh, Ryan Cordell um, is a Rangers prospect, former 11th round pick, who has moved, uh, this is curious, has moved from right field uh, to center field and now to shortstop. He's playing quite a lot of shortstop in their minor leagues for the Rangers. So uh, I ask McDaniel uh, to what degree he's ever seen a player mo- going that direction up the defensive spectrum. Uh, as is typical, Kyla McDaniel has supplied uh, interlude music, a musical interlude for this edition. It is a song, I believe, that is titled Going Up on a Tuesday. It's going up, going up on a Tuesday. This podcast has actually gone up on a Sunday, Sunday of the holiday weekend. It is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It does feature lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, Kyle McDaniel. And it begins after the aforementioned musical interlude. Thank you. And when I'm putting working on the weekend, I look back on this and think how we had the club going up on a Tuesday. Got your girl in the cut, she choosing club going up. Really? There's something very unique about like the sound pattern that it doesn't echo. It would have to, yeah, it would have to be. And so like, they they thought it was total BS, and then they started doing it. and They're like, yeah, it doesn't look like that's true. And then they like looked at like the wavelengths. They're like, actually, I think it may be true. I forgot really? what the conclusion was. I think it was that it's true. Wow. Well, yeah. even that, yeah, that's funny. I, it's funny. I wouldn't. I've never conducted any um, home experiments. Yeah, end. every now and then when you watch Mythbusters, I'll go through like phases where I watch it. They'll have one that seems completely like there's no way this could be true, and then it turns out it is. And those are always the fun ones because I feel like 80% of it, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, isn't that a? <clears throat> uh, wasn't that uh, Bill James standard? I'm sure there's a, there's a more um, like uh, discipline specific uh, name for this phenomenon. But the if when you are attempting to Employ a metric, a new metric. You're uh, maybe you want like eighty or ninety percent of it to make sense, and then another ten to twenty to surprise you. Yeah, and I well, there's also like the whole twenty eighty principle. There's a whole book about it. I feel like that's one of those sort of uh, scientific things reoccurring in nature with organic beings. It's just sort of how things organize themselves. Right. Is it is it is part of a Fibonacci sequence? It might be. Yeah. Hey, you got a new band coming up called Fibonacci Sequence. You gotta love them. I think this is what Pesca meant when he said sound quality is that <laughs> you say stuff like that. <laughs> hey, new <laughs> hit from Fibonacci Sequence. 
Always love hearing their tunes. 205, 5 after 2, 5 after the hour, 55 from the top of the hour. <laughs> I always love when they give me the time like 18 different ways, like there isn't a clock on the thing you're listening to. Yeah. There we go. All right. We've really touched on local radio. Yeah. Um, 72 in L.A. <laughs> 72 in San Diego. 72 everywhere. Hey, uh, all right. Are we going to talk about, are we going to talk about black swans or what? No, no, no. Let's let's do more uh, morning radio zoo crew antics. Uh, how about how about this first? Briefly, have you been to any game? Well, we didn't uh, pod last week, so I know I hadn't even noticed it. And somebody tweeted like, "Hey, what happened to the podcast?" I'm like, "I guess my body doesn't want to talk to Carson, so mm. when we don't, it's not like, what are you doing? It's like, nice job. Yeah, nice job. Good job, buddy. Wait, way to go, Kylie. You, you deserve a nice house beer. <laughs> Schmidt's gay. <laughs> the uh... I still contend that's the best SNL commercial parody of all time. Um, yeah, it's a strong one. It's, uh, yeah, it's a strong one. Yeah, I think yeah. there are many. I think three leg, three leg jeans. A yeah, leg and a, a leg and a leg and leg. Uh, crystal gravy. Yeah. Um, the Bassomatic, although I'm not sure that was a commercial parody. Yeah. Well, yeah, it'd be the same idea. Uh, or yeah, also, the one where the where they gave you the the what is it, Lake Erie water? That's the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> no, I haven't seen I haven't seen that one. It's like broken glass inside of a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there have been some. There have been some, There was a. There was the bad idea jeans where they're like. Yeah, I would say there's. I think there's a mom jeans. There's a lot of jeans related ones. Yeah, the jeans. Yeah. Well, it's a part part of our lives. All right, stop it. Have what games? Sure. Where? Who have you seen? Uh, and who have you seen, and uh, and what did you find out? I uh, went to a game yesterday, uh, afternoon game, Charleston and Rome in the low A Southern Atlantic League, the Braves and Yankees prospects. Okay. Uh, I was going to see a matchup of uh, now has been shortened to Ozzy Albies uh, and Jorge Mateo, the two best uh, probably low A shortstops in in baseball. Mm-hmm. However, since it was a day game after a night game, Mateo got the day off. Uh, but I got my first look at Albies, and I'm actually going to be driving to Greenville tomorrow to see the Red Sox prospects, including Johan Moncada. Your old friend. Uh, old friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, friend of the pod, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Mateo will be playing then. But it's also uh, the Boston team is ridiculously loaded. Their AAA team may be the best minor league team of all time. And their low A team has so many infielders, they actually intentionally don't play one every single game because they have too many. So uh, what are they going to do about that? I guess they're not. I don't know. Well, they actually were, had just the right amount when they had Moncada. They had uh, uh, Javi Garrett, shortstop, Mauricio Dubon at second, and would fill in it short every now and then. And then Devers and Chavis would split uh, DH and third base. So you had sort of a full infield and DH spot, and then you threw Moncada in there, who has to play every day at second base. And now they just rotate those guys, and so one of them doesn't play every game. All right. You, oh, at Charleston, that's, uh, that's Bill Murray's team, isn't it? Yeah, and they have some of the best uh, food in the minor leagues. And, and actually, if you go look at the uh, video of Dylan Bundy I have on the Fangraphs uh, YouTube page, mm-hmm. it's when I saw him in 2012 in Charleston. It's shot through chicken wire. The like the netting behind home plate is chicken wire. That's funny. I thought you were going to say it was shot through like a chicken, uh, like a barbecue chicken sandwich. <laughs> I mean, that may have also been there. Yeah. The problem is he, I think he only threw three innings. So like I was furiously trying to take notes, have the radar gun up, have the camera going. Cause I didn't know when he was going to finish. And it was, it was quite the juggling display. I feel like video of me taking that video would probably be more entertaining. The Ozai, Ozai, sorry, say his name one more time. Ozino. Ozino, but they call him Ozzy. I think just cause no, nobody wants to say that name. Okay. So let's say Ozzy Albies. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he was, I, I think he's a player, uh, uh, to whom you've staked your reputation a little bit. Is that right? 
Having never seen him before, yes. Yeah, right, right. But but the what was it? What, what yeah? What was it? I should I should ask you. So first of all, last year he was what a seventeen year old playing rookie level ball stateside, and I mean from a statistical point of view, he walked roughly twice as uh, much as he struck out. Uh, he was uh, which like literally doesn't happen unless you're like three years old for the level and not at a high level. Like that, you'd almost never see that. Right, and then so in addition to that, and it should be noted that part of why that was happening was, uh, and and, and I think uh, work by Chris Mitchell reveals that at this level the walk rate's less important, but guys who make contact and are young for their levels, and in this case play shortstop and also steal bases. And above average level, all good things, all good things in terms of yeah, the, and the, not the, just steals bases because there's guys that are 45 or 50 runners that'll steal 15 bases in Triple A. Mm-hmm. He's like a 70 runner and a plus defender with a plus arm that made absurd contact, was young for the level, has never not performed. It's kind of a ridiculous like it's if you could find a guy if that was that old and had only played at that level that you were going to be super in on, the only other thing you would add to the mix would be to make him bigger. But if he was bigger, he wouldn't be that good this quickly because, you know, bigger guys take longer to develop. Right. So, like, if you wanted the sort of surest 17-year-old in short season you could find, you would basically make this guy. Right. Uh, and maybe, I don't know, pow- power? or Is that what you're saying by bigger? Or? Yeah. If, if he would look like Troy Tulowitzki, he wouldn't perform that well as a 17-year-old. He would, you know, hit 250 and strike out more. Do you, do you have a sense? Well, that's actually – so – that's a that's a, a an interesting sort of tension you bring up because on the one hand, uh, if guys are able to put on mass, that usually I assume usually translates to more power. But at the same time, you don't you once they're doing that, then they're losing some of their quickness and and uh, you know less able to tap into that athleticism. So when you, is there a certain sort of like body type you're looking for in a 17 or 18 year old where you say he could put on mass but still continue playing the position ably? Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you knew that. <laughs> well, I just curious. I was curious as to what it was because because I do think about Troy Tulowitzki sometimes, and actually, you don't really expect someone with Tulowitzki's body type to be as as nimble because he's got a good throwing arm, I think, and that's ever, fine. Could you imagine your wife saying like, "Do you ever think about me when we're not around?" No, but I mean, I think about Troy Tulowitzki sometimes. <laughs> His body type, yeah. No, I I do think <laughs> of her when she's not around, but not for the right reasons. Oh boy, this is this is getting pretty heavy. This pot. Yeah, it's big time. Um, the uh, yeah. So if you just saw if you just saw Tulowitzki's Tulowitzki, right? Uh, what would be for you? What would be the odds? You say you know he's a baseball player. That's not, you know, he's not just like a businessman. But you, so, you, so you know that he's a baseball player. What are the odds from your point of view that he plays shortstop? Uh, well, he's one of those rare type of guys. There's actually guys sort of like that, defensively speaking, in this year's draft, where when you're really big, and may not get bigger, but you're already big. I, I mean, what is he, like 6'3", 210? Like, he's a big dude. Mm-hmm. Actually, he might be 6'4". Um, to be that big and play shortstop, you have to be amazingly coordinated and also amazingly athletic. Like, there's, I've talked about there is baseball athleticism and there's just like general athleticism. So general is more sort of football type where it's like size, speed, strength, like what's your 40, what's your vertical, like all that kind of thing. Right. You have to have that to just be able to, you know, move quickly enough and make acrobatic throws and stuff like that. You also need to be sort of baseball athletic, which is a little more like small, quick, first step type things and, you know, arm strength and things like that. And he also has that. And so you have to have both of those. There's a guy named Kyle Holder from uh, University of San Diego in this year's draft that is not quite that big but has those 
qualities and is like I think he's like six two, maybe one ninety five, and he is that kind of athlete defensively, but he turns out he can't really hit. Uh, but he still might go in the top 30 picks just because he's that good defensively and hits left-handed and is, like, okay looking at the play, but doesn't really do a whole lot. I think people think, like, oh, well, he can do that. So if you guys can do that, I'm sure we can figure out the whole, you know, there's athleticism. We'll figure out the hitting thing later. Mm. Mm. And now, does, does he have, um, even if he's not great at the play, does, does he still have some raw power? I would assume, given the body type you're describing, he might have some. Yeah, yeah, there's some there. But I think it's I think it's one of those things where he knows he can't hit for average and power, and so he doesn't really try to hit for power, and he's not even that great hitting for average right now. So, so it's it's yeah, kind of neither rather than both. Right. Uh, right. So, so the answer with regard to Tulowitzki is you you know you wouldn't think it's impossible, but a lot of things have to be going right in terms of this sort of what you might call sort of. Uh, traditional athleticism, traditional notions of athleticism, and also the sort of baseball-specific athleticism. Yes. Right. I probably wouldn't have said traditional notions, but sure. Traditional – you wouldn't have said tra- – <laughs> I was trying to think of typical, typical athleticism. I remember there was a thing in high school when there was like kind of a dumb kid in my class was asked something, and he like usually doesn't have the right answer to the question. And someone, was, a teacher asked him a question, and he says, da, 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 da. and you see that in the text, and we just all look at each other like, the word text is not like that fancy, but the fact that he said it like that effortlessly in that sentence, somebody gave him that sentence. <laughs> and it turned out he was like reading it from somewhere. <laughs> we were like, what? What? Was the, what was the sentence one more time? It was like asking him, like, oh, what in this book, like, were they trying to say X, Y, or Z with, you know, the themes or whatever? Yeah. And he says, like, oh, yeah, I think so. Because when you look at the text, it's like, only smart people say when you look at the text. Yeah, you gotta, That's yeah, not you a phrase text. dumb people say. Yeah. You know, you're going to say the uh, – then there's intertextuality, which is really important. <laughs> um, you can also problematize texts, problematize, and there are multiple kinds of texts, the television programs of texts. Yeah. Well, and if you're and if you're trying to compare uh, some of the text over different courses, you have uh, an intercourse uh, relation. Textual. I'm, I'm still a child. About, if you're keeping score at home, you're talking about textual intercourse, I assume. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't I be? Aren't yeah, we all? I don't know. Well, I try and protect myself from it, but <laughs> it's, it's fine. This has really gone off the rails. Yeah. Um, back to the entry point for this particular conversation, Ozzy Albis. Uh, did what you see do, did it confirm the conclusions you had reached before seeing him? Uh, I didn't get to see BP and it wasn't one of those days where he's making a ton of hard contact, but just the sort of way the swing worked, you could tell that there is, uh, there was back control. It was like, a, I, mean, I think he basically pulled three ground balls and like, I think he pulled a uh, fly ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can tell by how the swing worked and the way that like, you know how Chris Carter, like, looked like the, the football receiver for the uh, Vikings? Look, yeah. he had him and Reggie Miller, I think, are the two best examples of guys who I'm not sure have ever sprinted in their entire life. Like, everything was so controlled, and they knew exactly what they were good at and what they needed to do, mm-hmm. and they were still Hall of Famers. It was that sort of thing where it was like, I don't have to, like, try to do, like, a Luis Castillo slap hitting, like, uh, you know, chop the ball towards second base to try to get on base. I also don't need to try to hit it as far as I can. I'm going to sort of do what I can with these pitches, and they happen to be pitching them inside the fastballs, and so he pulled them, and there was easy back control to get to all the pitches and sort of make contact, and it just happened that that day it wasn't a lot of, like, you know, sort of line drive singles and all that, but there was there were plenty of solid indicators given what I already knew about him. Right. He remains 18 playing uh, Class A baseball. 
Um, yes. By definition, one of the youngest players, if not the youngest at that level. Maybe not the youngest, but... And and I should say, I wouldn't recommend for people, especially starting out in scouting, to go in knowing a lot about a player and go in looking for what you were told to see. Uh, but in that case, I've been told by so many people and seen a lot of video and was getting a one-game look that... If I'm making a conclusion, that's what it would be. I haven't seen enough to make my conclusion, but he's about an hour away from me, so I'll see him a couple more times. Oh, great, great. And then uh, you say Jorge Mateo was this other player? That you, yeah, were, you were, yeah, your designs on seeing. Well, I saw him last year in Instruct, so I already know what he looks like, and it's uh, I think similarly impressive, but little little less conviction on the bat, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's a generally similar kind of player. Uh, I think it might be a little more upside because there's a little more pop uh, and a little more speed. Uh, and can probably still play shortstop, but yeah, a little more of a guy, a smaller guy trying to get to his power that will probably uh, scale that back a little bit. Okay, uh, so that was one game you saw. Any anything else of note? I'm trying to think if there was another game I went to. Oh, well, I, over the weekend I went to go see Carson Fulmer in Alabama playing the Tide. Yes, you and did. I also saw Andrew Benintendi of Arkansas. Yes, uh, Andrew Benintendi. Against uh, Georgia and Robert Tyler, one of the top guys for the 2016 draft, who oh, was terrible. Oh, cool. Oh, he was he wasn't good, huh? <laughs> he was not good, but yeah, you could see. I mean, it was like super easy, like 95 to 98. Uh, but the command of the secondary and all that stuff wasn't quite there that day. Um, and uh, and what are your thoughts, Seth Tyler? What are your thoughts on Ben Attendee for the draft eligible sophomore center fielder for Arkansas, Andrew Ben Attendee? Yeah, he's a really interesting one. I saw him last year. Uh, when they played Florida and was just I forget, oh I was going to see Brian Anderson who went I think in the second or third round last year and noticed Ben Intendi was a uh, freshman and had uh, you know pretty decent stats and looked like a pretty decent player and wa- sort of watching BP in the game and obviously when you're watching like one player you have a lot of downtime and so I was like oh I'll watch him too but he was left-handed batting right in front of the right-handed batter so I wasn't you know bearing down on him but I was like oh it seems like a decent guy I'll file him away and then this year, somebody mentioned I like didn't even basically even think about him until like March of this year when somebody mentioned, oh yeah, he's draft eligible this year because of his age. He was a nineteen and a half to twenty year old freshman, and so he's a twenty to twenty one year old sophomore, and he's hitting really well. And I hadn't really looked at Arkansas's like roster or anything because the one pitcher they had Trey Killian, I've seen a lot, and he was kind of banged up. So I was just it, to... wait, was it Carson Sestouli who said it to you? No, it was a scout. It yeah. was when I was trying to refine my draft rankings. I was told Casey Houston. Because uh, I could guarantee you Carson Sestouli mentioned him to you. I am Carson Sestouli is how I know. I, I remember you t- mentioned him, but it was after I knew that. Oh, damn um, it. You didn't. That's not true. <laughs> no, because if you would have mentioned that, I would have been like, wait, he's el- like, We would have had that conversation. Yeah, I, like, I might I not. I actually might not have known for a while that he was eligible. Uh, I just knew that he was a sophomore. Yeah. Uh, but him and Casey Houston, I think, are the two, like, uh, as a right fielder for Alabama, are the two, like, sophomore eligible SEC guys that are kind of on the radar that maybe some people didn't know were eligible. And so Ben Intendi last year was, like, 60 runner, contact hitter, a little more pop than you'd think, but didn't show up in games and was, you know, hitting, like, 290 and struck out a little bit. And you're like, all right, he's okay. Uh, and then this year, he got a little bigger and now has uh, probably 55 raw power, but maybe 50 that's usable in games, which would be 15 to 18 homers uh, in the big leagues. And he has like 20 home runs and like isn't striking out and is playing center field and is like hitting 370. And it's like stole a bunch of bases. Like he's basically doing everything. Right. And yeah. he's like 5'9 or 5'10, like 180. He looks sort of like Nick Franklin in both his swing and his physicality. And Nick Franklin is another guy that had sort of like has like some momentum in his swing to where he got to average power, even though the body and the swing you wouldn't assume he would. 
Uh, and Benintendi, I think, is a little more sort of twitchy and strong than Franklin. And I'm using that as a comparable to to give you an idea of what he looks like physically. Yeah, yeah, not, no. not to say he's going to suck, which most people... When I Yeah, when I give, like, swing comps, Kyle Tucker's swing looks sort of like Ted Williams' swing. Oh, you think he's a Hall of Famer? It, oh, it drives me nuts that people can't hear that other word. Anyway, so he looks sort of like that. And, uh, and so I was told, like, oh, look out for him. Like, he's in that, like, you know, solidly in the second round, like, late stages of the first round. And this is, like, two months ago. And uh, then his numbers keep going nuts, and I uh, talked to an area scout, and he's like, I really like this guy. Uh, and they're picking, like, back half of the first round. And uh, he's like, I'm not sure he gets to us. And I was like, oh, this guy's got, you know, he's got some real helium. Like, this is kind of crazy. And I talked to another scout, I was like, we didn't know he was eligible the first month or two of the season. Like, our guy watched him and knew who he was, and then just suddenly was like, oh, he's eligible. Let's get some cross-checkers in here. Um so he sort of came on late, and he didn't play anywhere over the summer because I don't think people even knew he was eligible then, or not anywhere high profile at least. Uh, so he, people are now scrambling to see him like he's a pop-up high school guy, and there's not a lot of history on him. I mean, last year I was paying attention to him only because I needed somebody else to watch in the game. Uh, and so I went to go see him on it. Uh, I guess the weekend series go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the weekend before this tournament. So I got there on a Saturday after seeing Fulmer on Thursday and then a minor league game on Friday, and there were, I think, four scouting directors, like four or five VPs, and like 15 cross-checkers or higher at the game. Might have been 20. It was absurd. And when I sat down, I sat down behind a cross-checker for BP. And after Benintendi finished BP, everyone kind of gets up. And he looks at me, he goes, you here for the scouting convention? And I was like, I was, and I, and I start looking around, and there was like, uh, Ruben Amaro was there. And I look around, I saw like three, three uh, uh, directors behind us. And he was like, yeah, I was kind of surprised by this too. I was like, yeah, I guess late pop-up guy that might go in the top 10 and uh, you, get a, you get a lot of guys there. And I guess the short version of his sort of tools is like Daz Cameron has all this like hype of going somewhere in the like four to 10 range. And Ben Intendi has the same tools and he's left-handed and he raked in the SEC, but people have only seen him for a few months. And it's a little suspicious that a tiny dude added, like, two grades of power this year. Not saying that he's, like, a steroid guy, but if you haven't seen him hit a lot, and he's doing that, and it seems a little unusual, you're just a little hesitant, whereas Cameron, again, it's another weird example that you could use Dylan Tate as another one, where we have way more history with high school players than some college players in this draft. Right, so, yeah, I guess, well, the question, right, is, you say, what do we know about how, is this reflective of his true talent? Right, that's the thing you need to know. Because if you say this is his true talent, we believe that firmly. Then of course you're very excited. But if you're suspicious about, you know, if, uh, sort of flukiness, then you are obviously less inclined to uh, to put him up at the top part of your draft board. Well, yeah, and I think I'll probably have him in the top ten on my rankings. Ben Tendi? Yeah. Oh, and right. I think he's going to go in the top ten in the draft. Like. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think he gets past 12, and I think he probably goes in like that, uh, 5 to 9 range. Uh, and if you're like, you know, your GM walks in the room the day before the draft, is like, who are we gonna take? And we're like, well, we think this Ben Intendi guy's gonna fit. It's like, oh, why have I never heard his name before? Like, I, there were a couple assistant GMs that were, when I was doing my first mock draft, were like, who, Ben and who? And they're, <laughs> they're like in the middle of the first round, they didn't know his name. Like, three weeks ago. And obviously they're not going out and seeing players, but, the, you know, they know the names. Right. Uh, so, you know, you're talking to you, so you bring up, like, Kyle Tucker or Daz Cameron or Alex Bregman. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I know those guys. And it's like Ben Intendi right next to him. It's like, we didn't even, like, our guys didn't know his name until then. So are you confident that a guy that you weren't even making any time to go see three months ago is right next to those guys? And you're like, yeah, I don't know. 
and it yeah, it just it just sort of makes you pause for whatever reason. What if as a thought experiment, what if teams were able to do this, right? They perfectly see into the future. That'd be great. No, that yes, that's short of that. What I'm what I'm proposing is this: they do no research on players until say the last month, till the month before the draft, and then they are able to see every guy. And they also have the benefit they they have the benefit of statistical analysis where needed as well. So so you're suggesting that the uh, history is like a red herring. It doesn't really mean anything. It just gives you a nice warm blanket to feel confident about. No no, no I'm not I'm not saying about. that. I'm I but I am I am saying I, like I might be saying that. <laughs> you might be saying well that's I guess I guess that's my question because if you saw Andrew Benintendi now, you would be like well yes obviously this is a talented player. If, but but you, what you're saying is that because the track record's not as long, that casts uh, some some doubt upon it. I would also think like uh, like what? So I was thinking about this with regard to I saw a report uh, I think from Kyle Funkhauser's most recent start. Funkhauser is the right-handed prospect out of Louisville, and I think uh, I saw I think I saw that his uh, he he sat at 90 to 93 with his fastball, um, but yes. I. But I feel like he's been uh, he's thrown harder than that in the past. True. Yes, he was throwing like ninety three to ninety seven like a month ago. Okay, so if I go and I see a college pitcher throwing ninety to ninety three, with reasonable effectiveness, but not, you know, not uh, also not dominant, I say, okay, that's a, that's a that's a certainly a, a someone to monitor. And uh, to put on our draft board, but he is not what Funkhauser. That's not what Funkhauser has been considered, and he's been considered a like a surefire first rounder for what for at least a year, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the point is what, and, and we've just we've talked about this in in different terms before, but I'm proposing a thought experiment now. If you saw only that Kyle Funkhauser start, um, you know, I mean, you'd you'd have to make. Some decisions, but what would have happened if teams only, if they were somehow able to scout all of the draft eligible prospects over the course of a month, the month leading up to the draft? Uh, that would be interesting, and I think we have a, uh, not to cast aspersions, another $10 word, um, but the example of what the Diamondbacks are doing right now may be a decent <laughs> example of what would happen uh-huh. if you didn't have a lot of history, because all their guys got hired after the summer showcase season. And the only guys that were holdovers or that were even scouting before then are guys who's, you know, area scouts or, you know, regional cross-checkers who aren't going to make the decision. And so if the GM and president and scouting director all weren't scouting and got hired basically before the spring, in in effect, and they're making the pick, that's what they're doing. (laughs) And obviously if that's the case, they're not, they're not getting these, you know, cold weather guys or Ben and of these guys pointed out to them, uh, until, uh, you know, into the spring. Uh, the Diamondbacks had four guys at Benintendi's game, uh, but they're not going to get to pick him. Uh, but I I think if the draft happened two months ago, he would definitely be a target for them at 43 as a guy that if he gets to 13, they'll be like, hey, we got, you know, 14th overall money for you. If you can slide down there, you know, go throw out a $5 million. Like, that would be the guy you go after that has, like, some warts, but in some ways there's almost no. Like, the warts is just that he's new, mm. but that's it. Uh, and, and there's also another thing in the draft where there, we've talked about it before, but there's like biases against, or biases for guys that have never failed before. They just popped up and like, oh, that guy looks really good, but you haven't seen what summer showcase season, you know, like, oh, uh, you about striking with, out and stuff. Right. You talked about this with Tyler J, I think, right? 
and where, Brandon Nemo, a high school player out of Wyoming, that you just saw over the summer a little bit, and then basically didn't see him all during the spring because they don't have high school baseball there. And it was like, well, we've never seen him swing and miss before. And that, and it turns out he's a very good hitter, so that wasn't necessarily like a, you know, a fallacy they fell into, but that right. definitely helped him. Right. And then, and, 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 you and, and Tyler J, yeah, you haven't really seen him start before, but you can imagine he will because you see him in one inning look really good and have three pitches and all that, but you haven't seen him fail, so. And that's what's happening with Dylan Tate right now. He hadn't started until this year. He started all this year, and the last couple starts, stuff is backed up. He's throwing too many sliders. Looks like he's not confident, maybe getting tired. They're giving him a week off this week. If he comes back and is like 90 to 94 next week, like he may slide three or four picks just because, uh, you know, the last four starts weren't that good, whereas if the draft was before that, he might have gone 1-1. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. But, of... but in effect, you would almost expect that to happen. It's uh, one of those things I wrote about this week that – you know, everyone knew if you took Brandon Finnegan 17th overall and ran him to the big leagues, he would be really good in relief because that's the one thing we know he can do. The question is if he can be a starter. For some reason, he then shows up instead of 15th or 17th on everyone's prospect list within the, that draft class, ends up being fifth because, oh, he said success in the big leagues. You can't put him that low. It's like, well, yeah, but that's the thing we knew already. Like, that didn't answer any questions. And that's, you know, you could say it's the same thing with Carson Fulmer and the same thing with Aaron Nola and, uh, and some of these other guys where, like, that, that's the thing we knew we knew knew he could do uh but for some reason once he does it then it changes everyone's perception then yeah then then it's then it changes the perception right but and, and that was the, uh, in your <clears throat> your post this week uh the black swan theory of drafting pitchers i think i think it was that or maybe it was that no it was the time horizons post um, yeah. um also with regard to to carson fulmer where you where you again you pose a thought experiment you say um well um well, you said something to the effect where you say like with regard to Brandon Finnegan, how the, how it changes. But if you say, but you already knew that that was the thing that was going to happen. So why are you not integrating that into your um, into your analysis of where one player ought to go versus another? Well, yeah, there's a, a quote that I was trying to find that I couldn't spot on the internet uh, that Jeff Lunau was talking, I believe in his first couple of years as GM, about like some of the problems in the draft room. And he was saying that a lot of times you'll, you know, maybe you're picking, you know, fifth overall and you know that these guys are going to go in the top three. And so really you're breaking down your board to just like two or three players. And when you're comparing two players, you'll be like, all right, we got this guy here and this guy's like almost basically tied with him. Like we've evaluated them as equal. And then you go around the room and say, who do you want? And the scout will say, I want him. He's got power. And we're like, no, no, no. Power is already integrated into them being dead even. Talk about something we haven't talked about yet, which often is, you know, makeup or who's got the highest odds to, you know, improve or make adjustments or mental makeup, which you probably talked about it, but maybe not as much as you could have. You're probably focusing on the physical aspects, which is usually what you do at the beginning of this sort of discussion. Uh, and he was saying it was very hard. It took like years in St. Louis to get scouts to realize, oh, you can't just repeat something we've already factored, you know, baked into that ranking. You have to bring a new piece of information. And that happens all the time. Like it happened last year with Tyler Kolick. I used the example in the Time Horizons post about there were a bunch of scouts that had, I think almost all scouts had Tyler Kolick over Aaron Nola. And I would go, all right, Aaron Nola is going to be in a big league rotation by the end of next year, being this year. And, uh, and he's going to perform. He's going to be in the high minors and he's going to have trade values and he's going to come up and stuff. Like he's going to be a guy. He's never been hurt before. It's very unlikely he's going to get hurt in the next, you know, eight months. Uh, and he's going to perform. Like that's the thing we know he can do. The question is like what his ceiling is. And in that same time horizon of a year or two, we know Tyler Kolick looks like an offensive tackle and that he can throw a hundred and every now and then he can throw a good breaking ball. Basically not good at anything else right now for understandable reasons because it was new velocity, didn't face good hitting, you know, big dudes take longer, all that sort of thing. 
And so I go, 24 months from now, if you take Kolok over Nola, Nola's going to be written about by every major league writer in baseball, whether he's in the big leagues or not, because he is on that level. He's going to have tons of trade value. Think, you know, sort of like Michael Waka, who obviously was drafted later, but basically if you knew Michael Waka was going to be Michael Waka, he would have been about where Nola was in his draft class. And then with Kolok, Odds are, if you take this like a medium outcome, he's going to be in a ball with too many walks trying to figure stuff out. And if you try to trade him, I bet 10 or 12 teams wouldn't want to pay anywhere close to where you would be asking. And so at the very least, if you're going to get full trade value, you're going to have like a limited market for him. And I was like, at that point, if that's what happens, which I think is a medium outcome for both players, which one would you want? And they're like, oh, well, you know, that, I mean, and they basically said, well, in that scenario, I'd probably take Nolan. I'm like, that is the medium outcome of what is probably going to happen. If you could guess, why are you taking Kolek? And they're like, oh, he's an offensive tackle that throws 100. You have to take that guy there. And it's just like this idea of what sort of guy you take with what sort of picks and what sort of guy you favor over another. And I think people are ignoring, some people read the post to think like, oh, you should just take guys with like a low floor that are college guys that'll perform quickly. That's not what I mean, but that ends up that that's often the kind of guy that's overlooked in the top 10 because they're like not quite as sexy because you know what they can do. You've seen them fail on a Friday in the SEC, whereas Kolek, you haven't seen him fail before because he'll just strike out everyone he faces in high school Texas games. I, 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 I had the opportunity to see – I hadn't seen him pitch that much. I saw Nola, some clips of Nola, and uh, I was very impressed by his breaking ball. He has a nice yeah. – uh, it, it sort of resembles uh, Kluber's. It's that, that sort of two-plane breaker kind of in, in the low in, 80s. In, in most of his college starts, he had 360 pitches and at least 50 command. So that's strong. That's that's not a boring guy, but for some reason he was cast as that. Is it is it because – well, I've noticed this trend um, – um, I, I don't know. I haven't analyzed it scientifically, but I noticed this trend maybe among um, those sorts who identify as scouting types to uh, – that ceiling, the ceiling – it's not the most likely, or not the median outcome like you're suggesting, but it's the ceiling outcome that is um, most interesting, and the maybe the the, the risk attached to it, or the uh, chances of the player actually reaching that ceiling, I think uh, perhaps are there's less weight put on that particular variable. Is that I mean does uh, that seem does that seem uh, like a reasonable yeah. comment? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's part of the thing I started noticing the last few years where I, in the Black Swan post, I kind of zeroed in on the short high school, right, or short college right-handed starters that went in the, you know, top 20 picks or so. Uh, but those are the kinds of guys that get ignored for scouting reasons. And I think, uh, you know, Nola and Fulmer, like both you could argue fit in that group. I think Fulmer does. Nola's kind of a fringe guy to fit in that group as I defined it. But yeah, that kind of guy seems to be overlooked. And that you could also argue that even with the sort of the uncertainty, Tyler J from Illinois is that kind of guy that he hasn't started, but it's sort of like Finnegan. We know he can be good in a bullpen right now. He'll show you 365 pitches on the right day and probably at least 55 to 60 stuff on bad days. That guy, if the command is even okay, which it almost always is, uh, can get big league hitters out right now in some sort of capacity. Uh, but if he goes up and does that like next week, people are going to be like, whoa, he's got to be, you know, He's got to be 25th or 30th on a top 100 list because we know he can do this now. And all he has to do now is do it for six innings. Like, that seems like a very slow way to go or a very short way to go from where he already is. And, like, this isn't new information. This is like saying I want Kolek because he's an offensive tackle that throws 100. This has already been baked in. It's just you're watching it happen, and it's hard to ignore it, which is, I think, another reason why uh, lots of have any usable data on them. And then once, you know, like Alex Jackson right now has, like, all these, like, lofty comparisons to, you know, all these guys he could be as good as, almost went 1-1 and up going 6th overall – 
And they just went to low A and apparently had a, a hurt shoulder and hit really poorly and got sent back to extended to get his shoulder looked at. And so now we finally have data and it's terrible. And so I guarantee you, even though nothing has really changed and he was hurt, uh, during the spring that he tried to play through, he's going to get moved down 20 spots during these like mid-season top 50s because all the data we have that's like, you know, usable and like translates to trade value in most cases and all that sort of thing says he's bad. When before all we had was, oh, we just crushed high school pitching and maybe the best high school hitter ever. Like who knows? Like it's possible. And, uh, and, and so people like, thirst for that data, and once they get just a little bit of it, they'll move the guy too far up or too far down based on it. What you say about Alex Jackson, um, it, well, it's, it, I guess what um, it, it seems to relate to me to something you mentioned in your Black Swan post, um, I know that certainly it's covered by, maybe it's covered by um, Talib as well. Talib, right? Talib? 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 So I I've heard it's Taleb. Taleb. Let's say Taleb. That's fine. Yes. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely addressed, uh, at least a version of it is definitely addressed by uh, Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is that the human brain is not particularly great at integrating at integrating information all the time. Um, it, it's not necessarily great at uh, understanding how the degree to which if you have, so say you have information about Alex Jackson – Right, and you know, even if the, the 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 evaluator in question says to himself, "Well, I know that uh, he's hit really well against high school pitching, but he's also quite young and quite raw, and he could very well have some difficulty in in, in his first exposure to professional ball." Uh, but that is sort of part of the range of very possible outcomes, and none of which should alarm us regarding his future. But then, what, what you're saying is, once he produces that that bad data, then it's all the data that exists. There might be within that same evaluator. There might be a tendency to say to there might be an, an alarm. There might be a, sort of an alarm, and uh, they say, "Oh, this is not going as well as we anticipated." It, it is. Is that am I characterizing it correctly? It, this this sort of failure to integrate new information to weight it properly. Yeah, and I think with both of those books, I think two or one of the things that they both point out is uh, the brain is good at making, like, big, broad uh, sort of snap reactions with, like, sort of a gut instinct that tends to be pretty good. Which is useful during your everyday life, it should be said. And is also useful when you're getting, like, chased by a cheetah that you know that this rumbling sound means a cheetah's coming. Like, that's kind of where it came from. Right. Uh, but the things that it's bad at is when there's a ton of information and you're dealing with the big stuff uh, and basically ignore the little stuff because... You know, the more important data gets looked at more than the sort of less important long shot scenarios because obviously your brain is sort of conserving energy so that it, it can also notice if a cheetah happens to come up on you while you're thinking about that. And so I think one of the things both of those books talk about is that humans are really bad when they're given tons of data at knowing the long shot odds or the unlikely scenarios coming true. And so when before the draft, if I were to, I'd probably put a, 55 or 60 future value on Alex Jackson, you're assuming he, you know, you're comparing him to guys that sailed through the minors in a year or two. And so that is the expectation, whether it should or shouldn't be, when you know that any high school player, especially if they're hurt, uh, is going to perform poorly. And you knew that he got hurt after he signed and knew that he was a little banged up this year. Justin Upton had a bad uh, debut in low A and then just took off the next year and was basically in the big leagues the next year. Like you knew that that was part of the process. But there are also examples of players that were highly touted, were terrible eventually, or terrible like in that first full year, 
and then were terrible after that and ended up being terrible forever. <laughs> and very few of them, but some of them. And so you look at that and you're like, oh, all the data I have is negative. The guys that were terrible all look like that. And some of the guys that were just okay also look like that. And of the players that are great, only some of them did that. And that's all I have. So let me sort of go with the group uh, that is the most likely outcome for guys that have performed like this, completely ignoring all the stuff you thought before the draft, which should be way more important. And so one of the things I'm trying to do which I guess is a bit of a teaser. Uh, I will be putting future values on all of these sort of first and second round type guys before the draft to try to keep myself accountable for if I raise it too high or too low just because of their summer performance. Or if I do, it'll be because, oh, before the draft, we didn't know X. Teams were kind of laying in the weeds on this guy. He's actually better than this. And since I didn't see him this spring, I didn't know that, which happens sometimes. Uh, but we need to, if I'm going to change what I think about a guy, I need to have data, which I think in the process of going from pre-draft to draft to that first offseason, there's a lot of moving without very much data being shared by the prospect people. So, oh, I see what you're saying. Right. So there is there is a change of opinions, perhaps influenced by uh, what the enthusiasm one team might or another might have for a certain player. No, well, I mean that may be a proxy for how good he is. I'm saying they will look too much at the uh, short season uh, summer after they sign data. As a proxy for how good he is right now, as you know, as a proxy for how good he'll be in the future, mm-hmm. when that should almost be ignored for some guys. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, I think that the work that's been done, um, looking at uh, you know translating, uh, translating uh, low stats from the low minors, and uh, using those as predictive measures, I think that those would also you know, like Chris Mitchell's done work with that. I think that they would concur. I think that, or or alternatively. Perhaps there are some metrics which will which will give you uh, hints, and then others that don't. I mean, if a guy's not striking out, that's good, right? I mean, you could probably say that's good. Yeah, uh, he's not striking out, and if he's striking out a lot, then you say, well, contact is an issue, maybe. But maybe you, you know, maybe that's the sort of play areas to begin with, and therefore, I don't like. I don't know what the reputation is regarding Alex um, Jackson's uh, his rate of contact, but. It's a power guy that'll there'll be some strikeouts, but he's also an advanced hitter. So it's sort of like choosing to be a guy that strikes out some rather than not being able to hit it. Right. And then there are some guys who's uh, some hitters who are quite good. Uh, certainly, Matt Matt Kemp was this sort of hitter for a while. And who uh, someone just wrote about him that the oh yeah uh, Tony Blangino is looking at um, players who led uh, last year both in the AL and the NL. Uh, I think he wrote the NL version today, which is Thursday, which might be yesterday. Uh, my, I can't. I'm not going to boss people around. Tell them when they're listening to it. They're the ones who know. The point is that, uh, yeah, quality of contact, the correlation between the quality of contact and uh, overall batting line uh, is maybe a little bit looser than you think. In, in so, but but for some players like Matt Kemp, Matt Kemp's game essentially is based on quality of contact because he doesn't control the strike zone pretty well, um, and I think some other elements of his of his batting profile are not ideal. But he's always hit the, he just hit the ball really hard for a lot of his career, uh, and when he's when he's doing that, when he's at his best and presumably his healthiest, uh, he's quite effective. But if he's not, if he's not executing on that level, he doesn't have a lot of secondary skills, uh, secondary offensive skills to fall back on. Yeah, and I would also add that I think the, I haven't done this study, but I would guess the correlation between the stats for a high school player the summer after they sign, and their next season or two is not very high. 
Yeah, that's probably true. I feel like a lot of guys are advanced enough that they'll just like rake that summer against you know short season guys, retired college guys, and then maybe have some trouble against more advanced guys. And then there's certain guys that are terrible after they sign or get hurt or tired or whatever. And then the next year they kind of put it all together once they sort of you know get their full win, which I think will probably happen with Jackson once he kind of gets healthy and gets back out there. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't. Yeah. I, I I don't know what it would be worth. I mean, it's always uh, in one imagines that at least some teams. Uh, teams that are interested in uh, quantitative analysis have have looked at the uh, uh, what 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 metrics may or may not carry over at that um, at that level. Uh, but I think yeah, if especially if you're looking at some of the more uh, you know the, some of the metrics that require a number of plate appearances, you're probably not going to learn a ton. Well, that also reminds me of another theory I have that I don't think I've written up before. Oh boy! Yeah, here it comes. Well, this is kind of simple. It's that uh, the uh, plate discipline numbers of high school hitters are more uh, malleable to instruction in the minors the f- fewer amateur at bats they had. So guys like Delman Young or Josh Bitters that had you know probably thousands of of amateur at bats where they played only baseball and were elite players when they were like twelve. If they get into pro ball and strike out a ton and don't walk at all, they're probably not going to learn any better because they've been hitting for too long. And a dual sport guy like Carl Crawford that is like that, that barely played baseball, can probably make progress to being going from bad to passable or okay or maybe even good if they sort of haven't set – look at it like concrete. Right, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's the uh, – like if maybe every every young player has like X number of plate appearances – on route to, um, on route to becoming the player that they're sort of destined to become or might become. Um, yeah, that one doesn't. I don't think need a three thousand word article explaining it. No, I don't, no, I don't think so. Uh, let's. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question because uh, with regard to, all right. First of all, with regard to the just the black swan theory, uh, um, the the two examples you gave, and because I'm just looking for, I haven't read the book. Uh, certainly heard the the term used. Uh, the two examples you gave, on the one hand, it's what a hundred. 100 people, representative portion of the population, um, and then the the world's heaviest the world's heaviest person walks in. Pablo Sandoval is the name. <laughs> the average the average uh, weight f- uh, for the now 101 people is not different than it not much different than it was for the 100 people. Is, is that yeah. right? That was one of the examples. Yeah, he's he's using that as an illustration to explain sort of the distribution of. Uh, of outcomes for you know a hundred random people in a room by weight, and then the other one you'll give is you know by another measure which is not quite as bell curvy. Right, and that's the and that is wealth, right? Personal wealth. Yeah. Whereas if uh, if if you take a hundred people at random and then Bill Gates walks in the room, he he's probably he's wealthier than all of those people combined. By yeah, by like, and I think the way he explained it was the wealth in the room. Is well over half his. Okay, yeah. Whereas so, the the weight in the room is like maybe three percent that fat guy. So one of these things, one of these things, and perhaps one of this, uh, one of the things that's difficult for humans to get is the the magnitude of the outlier in any amongst any population. The possibility of the outlier, right? The fattest person's not going to be, you know, uh, isn't going to be as much f- fatter. Is much heavier than the than the general than the total population, whereas it wealth wealth has a wider distribution, in particular to the right, I guess. Well, right? Yeah, and one of the explanations he gives for this is like the ability to scale. So like, if you could outsource your fat to other people, then obviously the fattest person could make up half the weight in that room. 
Bill Gates can have other people making him money. And he, I think he also, uh, an example I didn't put in the article is he was saying if, uh, if, you know, your job was to be a singer, but you could only do in-person concerts for one person at a time, mm-hmm. that would be terrible. <laughs> but if you're able to like record it and send it to people, then you can get rich way faster. So out, so there's like limitations by the structure of those two different examples that limits it. It's not like, oh, well, wealth is a thing where you can, you know, make a lot of money and like, wait, you can't have that much weight. It's like, no, there's like a, a limitation to the weight has to fit on your frame and only so much weight can fit there. Whereas wealth is sort of unlimited. Right. Yeah. And, and can sort of scale to like be like almost, you know, like a, a pyramid of people making you money. It can't be a pyramid of people making you fat. <laughs> Unless you're a cheerleader, I, I don't know. Other, other people eating for you. Yeah, like that doesn't exist. So that, like, right. it doesn't scale. So that's the reason that it is like that. That's like the principle that tells you, you know, what sort of uh, world you're in. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. So I wanted to, um, um, and, and the, the thing that you came across, the thing you came across is that, uh, by and large, um, a, a type of player that has probably been, uh, overlooked and who might represent it. And the thing I like about this, right? So there was the short right hander. A player. Uh, there's only been. Uh, what were the criteria you used in terms of identifying? The, the I did uh, short, uh, right-handed college starters, sub six foot, uh, that were top fifteen to twenty consensus guys. So I did like the top twenty-five picks, but also these these drafts were recent enough. I kind of knew where guys were ranked, and they all fit in that top fifteen to twenty sort of consensus ranking. So listen, you say that they're consensus, that they're top fifteen twenty consensus. What make what gives them the the quality to you of sort of being ignored? Do you think that if if they were, if they is it that they are ignored or that they've had greater success than might have been supposed at the time? Uh, I guess both. The well, yeah. The and you're gonna hear this with Fulmer. Fulmer's a little different than these other four guys that have sort of already happened. And for people that didn't read it, the four examples of that criteria in the last ten drafts are Marcus Stroman, Mike Leake, Tim Lincecum, and Sonny Gray, which. You usually can't set, a, you know, three or four limiters and then have the outcome be 100% really good big leaguers. Where I guess Stroman technically hasn't been yet, but once he gets back from this ACL, he probably will be. Yeah. Or I guess he, he already probably. Well, he's has. been when he's pitched. Yeah. He's been great. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and when all of those guys were amateurs or you know college players, it was well he's performed well and he hasn't been hurt and stuff's good enough to be like securely in a rotation and there's command and performance. Uh, but he's short, so not a lot of playing. Supposedly could break down, uh, and maybe some of these guys like, uh, Gray, it was, well, there might be a little bit of effort there, might be more of a reliever. They all had slightly different sort of flavors of what kind of guy they were. Lincecum, I guess that was another one where like no one's seen his delivery before, uh, which is some people are saying about Fulmer. Never seen his delivery from a starter before, so I'm not gonna call him a starter. No one's ever seen a guy with Lincecum's delivery before, so can't call him a starter. I'm not gonna be the guy that's going to stake my reputation in the top ten pick on a guy doing something that's never been done before. But <laughs> your suggestion is, and this suggestion proposed by the Black Swan Theory is, that that is in fact the reason why you should do that. Yes, because there are biases against these guys going high in the draft. The sheer fact that they were drafted here or were seen as that sort of talent suggests that they are genetically more fit to adjust and are, you know, have already had to break down a lot of walls that have been put in front of them because of their height or their delivery or whatever it is. Uh, and you could also use the example of Fulmer as a guy that hasn't happened yet. So how, you know, how does this apply to him? He had one of the worst deliveries I've ever seen in high school and almost got a million dollars because everything else was so good and he'd never been hurt. And then he got to college and cleaned it up enough that he could be, went from a reliever 
uh, two starter didn't get hurt during that transition, which very often happens. I don't think he even missed the start with soreness or anything. Uh, he was went from a multiple inning reliever to a guy throwing 120 pitches to start, and nothing happened. Uh, and cleaned up his delivery enough so that he could dominate the SEC and set a bunch of school records at a school with a, you know, some pretty good past pitching, including Sonny uh, Gray, for example, and David Price, and yeah, a bunch of other guys. And so, to me, it seems predictable and traditional, but also small-minded to look at him and just be if you have a guy that's you know followed the draft for 10 years or 20 years or what you know how long these scouts haven't been like, oh, he's kind of short. Uh, not a lot of plane, delivery is a little herky-jerky, command isn't always great. He feels, you know, he was good as a reliever. We know he fits in that role. I think he's a reliever. And my argument had always been, look at these, name all of the other guys that fit that description, and they're all, and I'll name those four or five guys. And I've even had, like, statistical guys that I've talked to recently that I said that argument with, and they're like, yeah, but who are the guys that didn't work out? And I was like, I can't think of one. Can you think of one? They're like, no, but there's got to be some guys that didn't work out. And so I went and did that research, and once I saw, like, oh, if you go only sub-six foot, all of them have worked out and worked out really well. I was like, all right, that kind of supports my point. Maybe I should write this whole thing up because now there's, a, you know, Fulmer's here, and if I write a, you know, one-paragraph scouting report, I can't explain all of this in there. I, need, I think I might need a standalone article to properly explain why I like this guy. Now, and, why, and why you should like this guy for predictable reasons, but I, people don't go through old drafts very often, especially to find – you know, something that's common between 2% of players. Like, people are doing that sort of research. There's a lot of statistical guys for teams doing, like, broad stuff that if you were to ask them that specific question, they could give you the answer. But that's, like, a very small sample of a specific part of the draft where that's not going to come up on a lot of radars. Like, people don't notice that. When I tell when I tell a random scout, hey, name all of the, you know, sub-six-foot whatever, like, they're like, uh, Stroman? I can't think of anymore. Like, it's not on the tip of anyone's tongue. Right. So what do you think – what do you think – uh, and I think it, your most recent draft rankings, you had only two pitchers ahead of Fulmer, uh, Funkhauser and Tate. Yeah, Funkhauser is not ahead of him anymore, and he's almost neck and neck with Tate at this point. Right, and I, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um, and then I forget, you had, was it roughly the same in your, yeah, I guess it was roughly the same for your mock draft. Yeah, and Tyler J is probably, like those three are seen as the top three pitchers, and they could go in almost any order. Okay. And you think... You think there's reason to believe, however, that Fulmer will be the most successful or has the greatest chance of, of succeeding? That's something I'm going to have to try to figure out because I think some people read that and were like, "Oh, so he should be he should go first in the draft." Like he's a a slam dunk, uh, you know, according to this data and the way it's been presented, this is a slam dunk, uh, you know, three or four starter at least uh, that could also relieve if you need him to, and if you are certain that's going to happen. Like if somebody threw Marcus Stroman into this draft and he didn't have the knee injury, or you know you throw uh, maybe not Linscombe because he's kind of backed up some now, or you know if you throw uh, Sonny Gray in the draft, where does he go? Well, he goes one because you already know he's going to go straight to the big leagues. There's no uncertainty at all, even if somebody else has a higher upside. So I think some people read what I wrote and assumed that it would be that way. But the other thing is, if Fulmer's elbow snaps tomorrow, I'm not sure he's that guy anymore. So it's like there is some risk still that he doesn't fit in that uh, group. Like, these guys, I think, were officially lumped in those groups on draft day. And so I guess technically there's maybe another, you know, month or two where he could technically play himself out of that group by getting hurt, which is obviously very unlikely. Uh, and there's a chance that he's just the one of this group that happens to become a reliever because that's the way they develop him or whatever, although I think he'll be a starter. Uh, and then a guy like Tate uh, is, like, one. Like, he's, he's, like, on the fringes of it. But the fact that he has huge stuff... 
uh, and hasn't pitched that much. Like he's not the opposite guy, but he's not that kind of guy. And so I'm inclined to want to put Fulmer ahead of him, uh, but I'll have to I'll have to sit and think about like how I want to uh, how I want to have that sort of stand for my sort of uh, feeling at this snapshot in time. And the same thing goes for Jay. If, you know, Jay being left-handed, those guys are always more appreciated in general, which is why I didn't include lefties in that. And he's also short. All three of these guys are short. Uh, but he hasn't started enough to fit in this group. And if he did sort of like a Tate situation, all three of these guys should be considered that sort of guy because uh, none of them have been hurt and they've all performed well. It's just two of them have been relievers. So it's kind of hard to to lump them in there because you don't have the, the bulk of performance you have with Fulmer and these other four. So, yeah, I don't know what order I'm going to put them in, on, in the rankings, but, I mean, they're all going to be in the top eight, and I think they're all going to get drafted in the top eight or nine. So, Now, I know you didn't address hitters, uh, in, or you, you you addressed them to say that, that you would not be addressing them. That was the They were not within the scope of, the, of the, that particular post. But do you think that, do you think, uh, that with regard to hitters um, and utilizing uh, the black swan theory that there might be, for example, that maybe, uh, like, Tweener outfielders, or um, like undersized or undersized shortstops or something, they, they might be the the hitting equivalent. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about that a little bit. I know a couple years ago when I was sort of kicking this theory around, I did a podcast with Eno uh, when I was at my past job, and we talked about Clint Frazier possibly being one of these guys because he had 80 bat speed. But that's exactly the kind of thing. Uh, like, I guess I was thinking in terms of what's the unusual thing that could make a hitter even better than people think. And I thought, like, oh, maybe it's bat speed. Like, that's a thing that doesn't necessarily affect the style of hitter you are. Like, you can still be dictated to by pitchers, and the amount of bat speed just makes it easier for you to make contact. But that's exactly the kind of thing that's appreciated by scouts. And he went fifth overall, and even though he didn't have a great spring. So I didn't I didn't feel like that was it. And I don't, I don't feel like the style of hitting, for reasons I explained in the article, like, fits sort of the under under uh, undervalued skill. And so what you're suggesting may be a class of player or the defensive position uh, or, you know, the style of hitter in, in the sense of, you know, contact over power as opposed to power over contact, that kind of thing. That's possible that that's it. But the as I sort of explained in the article, the, the sort of uh, prescription for how you deal with players that appear to be uh, in that sort of, uh, I guess, the weight scenario of someone walking in where you're talking about a bell curve is to, uh, combining that and Kahneman's book, is kind of just make scorecard of, like, here's the six skills that matter, rank these six skills on, you know, a two-to-eight scale, and then average all those numbers, like, make it sort of as simple as possible, and rank them based on that, and that feels like the right approach for hitters. Like, that's what scouts have done. You can go back and look at drafts and be like, yeah, they're better at predicting hitters, or, you know, when you go to, you know, double-A or... uh uh, you know, higher levels for, you know, uh, prospect lists and things like that. Uh, that feels like the kind of approach that would predict hitters. And there may be examples of guys that you may be thinking of that are like, hey, what about, you know, like I know scouts will bring up Alan Craig when I'm doing prospect lists. Hey, what about the the unsexy, not huge bat speed, not huge power corner guy that, you know, didn't have high draft pedigree but really hits. And if he keeps doing it at the big league level, he's a guy. That kind of guy seems underappreciated even double A. Yeah, and maybe there are examples of specific examples like that where guys that fit that profile but also have these three statistical indicators, those are the guys that will succeed out of this group. But that seems, you know, very specific. And although I guess the college pitcher thing is also very specific. Um, so yeah, maybe, I'm sure those things exist. Uh, 
but I'm, it didn't seem as readily apparent to me, and I also was trying to apply it to the draft. It didn't seem readily apparent to the draft uh, yeah, yeah, that's pool fine. of players. I'm just curious. Uh, can I ask you uh, just about uh, – uh, we've, we've been doing this for almost an hour, so we, we, should, we can get going soon. The <clears> – <throat> Um, Have I feel fulfilled Dave Cameron's uh, requirements? <laughs> fulfilled his obligation. Yeah. The uh, yeah. I want to ask you just about uh, about a couple of players in particular. Um, one of them is I don't know. He's almost beyond black spot. I'm curious how you feel about him. Um, is uh, Dodgers right-hander uh, Jose De Leon, who has I think at this point produced uh, as what a 22-year-old I think at. at uh, at high in the high California league, I think has produced the best strikeout and walk rate differential, which is a pretty strong indicator of, you know, talent, um, or at least of performance. And he's done it. You know, he's he's increased his velocity over the last year. Uh, he also has a really good changeup. I'm curious as to uh, as to where you are right now on Jose De Leon, and what. What like, you know, we're talking about like how much of a sample do you need before you jack a guy way up? I don't think he made your top 200 list, but I would imagine with the performance now in combination with the stuff that that he uh, you would view his future more optimistically. Yeah, he was the guy that uh, was a super low profile guy, and then the stuff kind of exploded last year in rookie ball. Well, twenty something, and then he went twenty something round, right? Like twenty second round, twenty fourth round, and he was twenty one years old last year and was still in rookie ball. Um, and then went to low A for four starts and had absurd numbers, almost 17 strikeouts per nine and less than one walk. But he was also like two years old for the level, and it's four starts. And you're like, all right, stuff's good. We don't really have a track record of him throwing hard, so we're not even sure his body can handle it. Maybe his elbow pops once he has his fifth start. And we haven't seen him against guys that are his age yet. And so I put him in the 45 group and said, all right, he's behind guys like, uh, I think I had him behind Chris Anderson and some other guys that are, you know, generally similar, but have been sort of on, on the radar for a couple years and have performed and have thrown that hard for a while and all that sort of thing, uh, where you're a little more comfortable with. And then De Leon comes out this year as a 22-year-old in high A, so only one-year-old for the level, and has had similarly great numbers in a very pitcher-friendly league in seven starts. So now you've got double-digit starts and performing against guys closer to his age and was in a pitcher-friendly or in a hitter-friendly league. Presumably, will go to double A before the end of the year. Um, the stuff is very good. It's, uh, I'd say third, fourth starter stuff. Uh, and the, obviously the performance is great. So you could say the command may be even better. There may be like some deception or something that's playing the command, uh, at, you know, better than it may appear at sort of first blush. So maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a solid third starter. Uh, that would obviously be a great find at that level and all that sort of thing. But we're also talking about 11 starts, uh, which I think we're still in the area where we're not sure his arm can handle this yet. It probably can, uh, but we're not positive. So, yeah, I mean, I would move him up uh, at least into the top 200. And uh, I don't know if he can keep keep this going to the middle of the season where we've got like a solid, you know, half season to maybe two-thirds of performance at this level. Maybe he gets bumped to double A. There's a couple good starts. I think at that point I'm ready to get on board and put him in the top, uh, you know, put a 50 on him and put him in the top 140 and all that sort of thing. But there's also not necessarily a great uh, rubric for how to – because we we know what the stuff is and we can see the performance and so there's not a great rubric for like how you rate a guy after like ten starts uh, when, when he's facing guys way younger than him like it's I'm not ignoring scouting reports we know how good he is uh, but like I said I'd rather be able to talk to multiple guys that have seen him this year 
and uh, and you know see a full year performance and kind of get all that under his belt so that we can you know take out all of the qualifications of can his body handle this? Has he faced a guy his age yet? Like all those sorts of things because then that makes it much easier because then you can just be like uh, like I think something uh, Jeff Sullivan said. Uh, on the podcast last week about command, it's if the stuff is really good and the results are really good, the command's, you know, about average or so. And if stuff's really good and the results are really bad, the command's way below average. And you can kind of make those sorts of determinations. And so for him, De Leon, it's, oh, the stuff's very good and the results are really good, but he's not facing anyone his age. And so if the stuff's really good and the results are really good and he's facing guys his age, then we can ignore all of that, all that other stuff and just be like, all right, he's like third, maybe fourth starter. He's performing. He's in double A. Here are all the other guys that fit that description. Uh, and we, I, I'm not quite comfortable doing that yet. Right. Um, <clears throat> one last player I want to ask you about. Uh, and I actually, let's see, I think I might have noticed him because of his statistical profile at sort of towards the very end of last year, but then uh, became more enthusiastic about him, not only due to a report that's, that Nathaniel Stoltz wrote last year, but then also... Uh, uh, some notes you had about him in the Texas Rangers uh, post you did evaluating the prospects post top you know prospect list. I think you had him included in the others of notes. Ryan Cordell, Ryan Cordell. Uh, he is a, I think he was drafted out of Liberty University in 2013, yep. uh, 11th round. I don't think he got a particularly large bonus. Uh, <clears throat> Ryan Cordell is interesting. So you described him as uh, so you, you noted that he was a a large athletic person. Um, who had had maybe unexpected success with the bat. That was how you characterized him, something along those lines. Um, and I, I took note of the athletic part because I noticed that he had been playing mostly corner outfields. And I'm curious if you have heard of something like this happening before. Um, in his first year in professional baseball, Ryan Cordell played, I think, almost exclusively right field. That would have been at low A. Uh, last year... Uh, splitting time between Class A and High A, but mostly with the former, he split time between uh, right field and center field. So a slightly more, um, slightly more ambitious defensive uh, defensive requirements. This year he's also splitting time, Kyle McDaniel. However, he happens to be splitting time between center field and shortstop now. So <laughs> it's an unusual path. Yeah. He is. He is rocketing up or to the left, whatever direction you want to think of, the defensive spectrum. Curious for you, what does that mean about maybe Ryan Cordell specifically? I don't know if you have any opinions on that. This might be the first time you're hearing it because you've been concentrating on other things. But generally speaking, have you are you familiar with that trajectory for a prospect? Well, I can, I can actually have some experience with him, so I, I can tell you. Uh, so I remember when he was in his draft year at Liberty – a scout told me, oh, he ran a 6'5", which is 70 speed in the 60, and he's 6'4". Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. And he was like, yeah, but I'm not sure if he's a guy. I don't know if he can hit. And then by the sheer fact that he went in the 11th round implies that everybody thought, I'm not sure this guy can hit. Right. Um, it is, it implies that even the team that wanted him the most, the Texas Rangers, weren't sure that he could hit. Yeah, and right. so then he gets in the system, performs a little bit, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Just you know, he's older and he's athletic and all that. That, that could break down. And then I was actually talking to a guy with Texas, and he's like, "Yeah, we're gonna move him to shortstop this year." And I was thinking like, "Oh, he was kind of interesting as like a you know all-purpose outfielder that hit a little more than you expected. That was very athletic." And uh, but now you put him in shortstop. I didn't even know he played played shortstop. He's like, "Yeah, he hasn't played since high school." And I was like, "That's a little <laughs> weird." Uh. And and so yeah, then he got on my radar. I'm like, well, this guy can hit at all. You've got a six four shortstop that can really run. Like that, that's pretty interesting. And 
Yeah, he's still hitting. So I, I don't know what to say. I haven't, I haven't seen him before, but, uh, he's been an interesting guy for a while and he keeps hitting and like you said, he's moved the defensive spectrum. So it's clearly, I don't know, it's something, but yeah, there's not a lot of examples of this. Yeah, that's what, yeah, I was, that's what I was curious about. You just don't, you don't see it. You, you know, I mean, it's very but he'll common. Be on their, I'm going through and editing these lists and he'll be on the list now just because that, like, if you're a seven year old that can play shortstop and you're six four and you're hitting, like, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> It's very right, and of course, it's very common to see players because basically everyone who is in professional baseball, uh, you know, especially right-handed throwers, they were all shortstops at one point or another. Shortstops are maybe catchers, depending on what their teams needed. I mean, that's, that's fairly that's that's fair to say, right? Or, or you know, ninety percent yeah, of them. Yeah, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're left-handed. Right, and then uh, and you know they've generally gone you know they've uh, trickled down the defensive spectrum. Some of them. Some of them more quickly than others. Some of them have have played like Mike Morse at one point, whether he should have been or not. He even made major league starts at shortstop, and uh, it would be surprising yeah. to see him. Sort of Miguel Cabrera. Yeah, right. It wouldn't be surprising to see both of them there, but rarely. Bartolo Colon was a starting shortstop in 1973. <laughs> it was someone maybe, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, anyway uh, a curiosity. It, w- it would be interesting to see. I don't. I don't. Uh, it's rare. I don't have any um, uh, precise cases of it. I guess uh, it's happened to us in the majors recently. Stephen Pierce has started, or Steve Pierce uh, has started to play some second base for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, I know that Doug. Well, Man- I feel like there's some precedent for that. If you're like a good third baseman, corner utility guy, you can slide over and play a fringy second. Like that's that's a little more common. Right. Right. And Doug Mankiewicz, I think, did that at one point too. Um, a lefty. Nikavich, who's managing the Double A Chattanooga Lookouts, who I just saw. There you are. Hey, way to wrap it up like a bow, Kylie McDaniel. I actually have one more thing I wanted to point out, though. All right. <laughs> to really ruin this, I added a note. Actually, I don't think you technically edited it, but I added a little two-paragraph note at the bottom of the Black Swan article because a number of people further down in the comments, the, the first like 15 comments are all like, "Kylie, you're the best. Let's carry you on our shoulders through Town Square." But a little <laughs> lower down. <laughs> Which it's scheduled for Friday, by the way. Um, and a couple people on Twitter also mentioned this, like, oh, but like black swans are like things you can't see coming that you can't calculate the odds for, like the creation of the internet, like uh, something that happened four times in ten years is not a black swan. And I was like, yes, thank you for pointing out this obvious point. I think that was pretty clear in what I wrote that uh, you know it's supposed to be an unforeseeable thing that's very hard to see coming that you know. Experts, thousands and thousands of experts in an industry and finance can't see it coming. It shouldn't be easy enough that I can just be like, I'm short right-handers and be like four out of, four of them out of ten years. Like, oh yeah, there'll be another one every year or two. This is so rare. It happens every two drafts. Like, I realize that. Stop being a wet blanket, you academic weirdos. Also, whenever you read anything on the internet, there's always somebody who wants to tell you what's wrong, even if it is 100% right. Yeah. And so I added a little two-paragraph thing where, where I basically explained, Yes, this isn't technically by the academic standard a black swan because a black swan would be Albert Pujols going in the 13th round 16 years ago and no one that good going that late since. That's kind of useless. So this is the useful version of it. Is this and like my, a very dark brown swan? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. Like, well, and what I said was no one's going to do a study trying to identify the next Albert Pujols as an amateur player because, one, that would be impossible, and, two, it would happen like twice in your three times in like your working lifetime. So it would be kind of useless that you may actually be in charge that year to make the decision anyway. And people may point to there was a scout with the race who quit because he said we should take Pujols, and they didn't. That guy was lobbying to take him in like the eighth round. He didn't know he was going to be a Hall of Famer. 
Um, so that that's literally impossible to see coming. If the whole industry thinks this guy belongs in the tenth or later round, and he ends up being a Hall of Famer, that means every scout on earth missed on him. And there's no way some guy with a computer is going to figure that out. So yes, that would be the academic application into baseball. But I found something that I think is actually useful by using these principles, even if the definition isn't the same. But there isn't a better example of that that more closely fits the academic uh, definition. So I'm going to call it Black Swan because I thought of it. So how about that? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, <clears throat> people should know probably Paul DeYoung, Paul DeYoung or DeJong or DeYoung, Illinois State. Yeah. Black- I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've the the rankings I put up in April. I've been going back and adding players uh, to the bottom sections as okay. I sort of come across them. Uh, mostly because when I do the updated ones, it's easier to have them already written into the system, so I can just kind of copy and paste them. Uh, so there's like I think 390 players on that article right now. Oh great! <laughs> and he yeah. was one of those guys I added like a week after I put it up. I was like, oh, forgot about him. Throw him on there. Yeah, throw him on there. I'm very curious. What 38th round last year? I'm going to guess he's going to go higher than that this year. I would hope so because there's only 40 rounds. Yep. Yeah. Who knows? You play so games. yeah, the plan the plan is to have edited draft rankings and a new mock draft and all that stuff up next week. Or if you're listening to this, maybe this week. Uh, and yeah, I think the only traveling I have is to go to that Greenville game tomorrow. But I'll drive there and back in the same day. So hopefully I can get all this done. And we also got a, an exciting crop of young writers uh, that we've already hired slasher in talks with, and I'm still going through all of those many many emails I got from like a month ago. Well, that's a uh, that's a, some great updates, Kylie. Yeah, that's that's a little uh, housekeeping from me. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody wanted that, but no. Well, luckily it's at the end. That's true. No one's listening at this point. That's for sure. Definitely mm-hmm. not the guy fixing my AC who just left. Actually, I'm going to edit this in a memento-like sty- uh, fashion. So this will <laughs> actually be the first thing. This will be the first thing people have heard. You're gonna wonder why I'm commenting on how no one's gonna hear this. Yeah. I'm like, wow, does he think no one listens to the podcast? Because yeah. he's almost right. Yeah, the numbers the numbers bear it out. Anyway. Thanks for uh, our sponsor, Steps.com. Kylie, McDaniel, thank you so much. You have uh wait, I should say you fulfilled your obligation. I should and I have said that. Is my obligation like twenty minutes longer than Dave Cameron's? Because it, like, it is a little bit long. Well, mostly it's just uh Dave Cameron refuses to talk. He just he will stop talking. Yeah. So it's hard to keep him going at that point. He would hold a gun to your head to make sure you stop at 40 minutes, but he can't, so he just holds a gun at his computer and it assumes you can see that through the Skype. Not true, that, but uh, no, mo- he he makes a lot of... Uh, he, Money? No, I don't think he does that either. But <laughs> by way of intonation, he makes it clear that we're not talking any longer than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Carson, we're done. Yeah. Uh, but thank you, thank you, Kyle McDaniel. Thank you! That has been Kyle McDaniel. The uh, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.